everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Today, my guest is my friend Bobby F. Weaver from Massachusetts, who, for privacy purposes, is speaking under a pseudonym today. For today's episode, Bobby picked Fish's show from September 14th, 2000 at the Darien Lake Center for Performing Arts near Buffalo, New York. A number of months ago, I recorded a mini-episode about the Susie Greenberg played at this show that closed the first set, but there's so much more to it than that. Musically speaking, this is one of the most dense shows I've ever heard. For example, out of 12 songs in the first and second set, eight of them are on the Fish.net jam charts. There's a lot to it, but there's so much more to it than the music. Bobby was there with his friends. I was there with my brother. There were rumors at the time of the impending hiatus, which had not yet been officially announced. And pretty much the same jam weaved throughout the entire show, popping up in all the different songs. And Bob and I had a great time breaking it all down. So decide whether or not you want to woo. Don't you dare underestimate Prince Caspian and make sure to bring a change of dry clothes for after the show as Bobby F. Weaver and I go over September 14th, 2000 at the Darien Lake Performing Arts Center. Bobby fucking Weaver, welcome to Attendance Bias. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing fantastic, man. Thank you for having me. I am very excited to have you and excited to talk about the show that we have on the table today. September 14th, 2000, probably one of the more well-known shows that have been discussed on this podcast for reasons we'll get into. I have a lot of good stories about it, but this is about you. To talk about today's show, September 14th, 2000 at Darien Lake, which for all intents and purposes and anyone who hasn't been there, we're pretty much talking about Buffalo. Right. Yeah. And uh, maybe the rainiest day I've ever experienced, at least during the set break. And you look like you're still a little wet from being there. I I was absolutely drenched. It is way, way up there on the wettest I have ever been. I've got a couple of days I, I served in the military where we were a little bit more wet, but that's, you know, a different, a different time, a different show, just absolutely drenched. And we knew it was going to happen. We knew what we were walking into. We had, you know, prepared ourselves mentally. We were on the lawn and, uh, yeah, right. It is hard to mention this show without talking about like an absolute downpour. And that's not until set break. So before we get there, we have a lot to tackle. We have to talk about you as a fan. We'll talk about fish in the fall of 2000. And then we get into one hell of a second set. But we have a lot to go. So let's start with the attendance bias lightning round, Bobby. Attendance bias lightning round. When was your first fish show? Uh, burning down the house, man. Uh, eight twelve ninety eight Vernon Center, New York. I think is the official uh, place. It's at is it a horse track, like a harness horse track? I went in. I'm, I'm a fan who went in fairly cold at the restaurants where I worked. You know, the kitchen guys would play fish, so I'd be back there loading up my my food tray. And I, I do remember distinctly the first you know actual song I heard. It was the album, but it was Reba, and. It was the, you know, beginning in the courses. And I'm like, this sounds like crazy music. And they're like, yeah, man, you got to get into it. I was like, all right, I'm going to go run this food. <laughs> I'd go out and I and I deliver my 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 uh, dinners, get a, a drink order, you know, and I'm back in like probably like 10 minutes. And I come back in. I was like, oh, this is cool. What's this song? And they're like, no, this is the same song, man. And I'm like, what? 
what? And the one guy turns to me, he goes, listen, who's your favorite band right now? And I'm like, it's Guns N' Roses. Like, that's, you know, what do you mean? That's <laughs> that's not a question. Um, I was definitely into lots of uh, grunge music and I loved all that. But if you're asking me, you know, right then it was Guns N' Roses. He's like, all right, now listen, now think about like a good Guns N' Roses song and let's just pretend it just doesn't end. <laughs> it just keeps going. That's what these guys do. And I'm like, all right, I can be down with that. But those were like brief little like, you know, interludes. And I had a buddy who maybe played me a tape or something. But I went in completely cold, had no idea, really, I couldn't name a song. And even as the show went on, I didn't know what the songs were. So starting off uh, with a cover for me was like, oh, wait, I know this song. This is ZZ Top, right? And uh, <laughs> and uh, settling in to Maki Supa, which is like, you know, unofficially like the oldest song in the repertoire because it was written, you know, in their like fifth grade or fourth grade or whatever. And having like this like reggae feel and then just like it exploding. And, and you know, I know that the Talking Heads cover at the end gets a lot of attention, but like Ramble On was in there. I was unfamiliar that, you know, no one you could have told me that the Funky Bitch was a, a cover or an original. I would have known, you know, for probably some time after that first show. But yeah, was was absolutely just beside myself and uh i, th I think the, the the fungus probably helped <laughs> it usually does well how old were you so we're talking about the summer of 98 the late summer i guess 20 okay yeah yeah 20 years old out of high school and i kind of bounced around in college and i joined the military so like uh you know i was kind of in the in the middle of doing all of these like changes mm -hmm. and it was just another part of me that became like wow this is like so different. I, I, I remember um, I was at a festival years later and someone had remarked, they're like, did you serve in the military? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, how do you serve in the military and get into this scene? And I was like, they're both really, really intense, man. Like, that's really what it comes down to, especially when it comes to to fish. There's lots of jam bands and, you know, I love the dead too, but it doesn't have that same like super intensity that fish can get into with like the, the tension and, and the release and things like that. And I said, that's the best I can tell you is that it just kind of grabbed me in, in such a fashion. Um, Jerry so yeah, Garcia I, himself was in the military. He, he was very yeah. briefly, <laughs> very little, briefly little stint, you know, it, there's a, there's a number of, uh, of uh, figures in in our little corner of culture um jimmy hendrix uh jim Hunter Marston, Thompson. i believe right for a and, short while his father was it was in the navy yeah his father was in the military uh and then he was in there for a little bit uh hunter thompson um was actually you know a writer in the military and they finally got to the point where like this isn't going to work out you know and that's not even really considering you know drug-fueled counterculture that was just you know hey listen this is not the the place you know for me but I was, you know, for those 18 to 20 years, I was on my own, um, paying my own way through college. Like I said, if I was not responsible for so many things already, uh, I might have made that jump and in, in, in driven off to Maine. Um, but yeah, I was I was changing schools and I was moving that weekend and I was like, OK, I'm going to I'll be on the fall. <laughs> and, and I jumped on some more shows in the fall right then, too. So. Well, that'll that'll lead us about a year later to today's show. But if your first show was in late August 98, what's your most recent show and what did you think of it? 
so I have not um, returned to shows since COVID yet, unless we want to count New Year's Eve, which I do in my stats because they let us do it on Fishnet. <laughs> um, well, my well, last I will like, too. Hold on. I got to update my app. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, as soon as Trey said, hey, everybody can get into this show, I think that opened the floodgates um, and says we can we can count it. Um, but yeah, uh, post COVID, I have not been in person yet. Um, so my last one is going back to July 21st of 2019 in Charlotte, North Carolina which, you know, was, it was a one-off show. Um, we were living down in uh, the Atlanta area and we're like, Hey, this is the one we can make it to. We, we shot up for the weekend. We stayed in the camper. Uh, we actually traveled with a nanny for the kids. And uh, my wife and I went and, and brought a first timer in the times where like, Hey, I can only make it to one or two shows in a tour. These are the things that I would want out of it. And I'm not a song chaser. I do have my list, but I'm not a song chaser. I don't get upset. Uh, I'm more concerned with how the band plays. Like if they're going to, you know, play, you know, tight, they can play whatever. If they're going to, you know, explore and, and be jammy, I don't care what, what the springboard is for it. I am, I am pro soul planet. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, after Mexico, I am too. <laughs> yeah. So um, that show, you know, opening up with something like have mercy and I, and I like the covers and I like the in- inclusion of them. But that just set a crazy tone to be at one of those. And I know that they've become a little more frequent now, but I don't think it matters. It doesn't change the specialness to be at one of those like theme shows where they keep returning to like that, whether it's a tweezer jam or the NICU show or, um, uh, you know, even I I can't remember. In Vegas, there's the the countdown show where they did all the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're all fantastic. Yeah. They're all special. I don't know if it's ever been, you know, written the set list or confirmed, but it was a, it was a pretty good, I think it felt like a free bird jam. So <laughs> I think that, yeah, it, it, it felt that way. So uh, that's what I write down in my little notebook. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the second set opening up with a, with a runaway gym, funny enough, I didn't see a runaway gym until um, the end of the second hiatus. So um that one's always awesome to check. And, you know, the rest of that show was just like, it was just, it just fit into like, Hey, here are all the things that I want. You know, I do love a nice, like four song sentence, second set. Those are great. You can't always get those. There's not, there's only a handful of them anyway. And we had um, pavilion seats. We hung out in the lawn for a while. Then we went down to the pavilion. It was a little, you know, I would say it was crowded. I was dancing in the aisles. Um, having having a great time, and it was a a, a rocking possum, which was that moment of my first. It was at my first show. It was at Vernon Downs. Um, so I always uh, you know, like to like to to catch a good possum like that. And sure. um, they did encore with more, which I love, and I've I've I don't shy away from you know what some people like to label the dad rock or whatever. I think that that song always has a a special place for me. Um, just kind of personally with some stuff with the the twins and the family and things like that. And then a tweet prize, you know, is just icing. So a couple very revealing questions. When they play Harry Hood, do you chant Hood? Uh, not normally, no. I, I I enjoy it. I promote it. I enjoy that. The same thing like with the woos. Like I, I'll, I've wooed. I Well, that was going to be my oh, next question. Yeah. To woo or not to woo? I, I think it's to woo. I think if Trey tells you to woo and they asked him that point blank I'm, i don't know if it was a serious interview 
or if it was a different outlet, but I, I'm pretty sure there's video and they, they said woo or not woo. And he's like, woo, like he's egging everybody on to woo. Like th- there's not a question of, you know, uh, do we uh, do the Simpsons dough when, when the, the signal's given, right? We, of course we do. Um, and I don't think people like really, you know, uh, are really that much against chanting hood when it's Harry hood. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think you woo. If you could see fish play at any venue in the whole world, where would you pick? Man, you know, I have this recurring dream. Um, and I think we all have like some, some show dreams, right? We all like. You get more frequently than I would like sometimes. Yeah. 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 So I have one and um, it's definitely like at a middle school auditorium and it's all anticipation. The band never comes on stage. But it's one of these scenes where it's like all of your friends are arriving and you're seeing them all there. And then there's hugs and there's like just just pure joy as we kind of get ready. So if somehow and I don't think, you know, invading a, a high school or a middle school auditorium is the way that fish should go. But if somehow that like type of experience could get recreated on our larger scale, I think that would be really cool. I'm also really looking forward to the MSG sphere opening up in Vegas. And I know that's not a guarantee that they'll, you know, hit that up. Um, but that's, uh, something I'm looking forward to. Um, I like the fests. Um, that's my favorite, you know, my, my favorite is, is wherever they're going to throw the festival and, and have it. Um, but my, you know, uh, my old stomping grounds when I'm asking, when someone says, Hey, what's, where's the place? It's, it's, uh, it's the Nick. It's the Times U Union sure, it's the sure. Arena, now rebranded as the MVP Arena, which I think it's, is kind of a. It's <laughs> always going to be the Nick. It's always the Nick. Yeah. What is your most controversial fish opinion? Here's here's a good one. I like it when fish shaves his beard and his head. New Year's a couple years ago must have been your greatest moment. <laughs> getting that head shaved i had I, I i have a screenshot of when he had it was like half shaved and he had a little bit hanging off there and he's he's wrapped in in basically one of these things like it was like a blanket or something that he had and uh the kids were cutting his head yes that was that was awesome <laughs> and finally what is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show um so my second show i just tweeted about this too um my second show uh, was at, was at the Nick. It was in Albany. Um, and we were inside. It was, um, I forget the date. It was November of 98. So it was like, right. It was like the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Right. So the biggest party night of the year, everyone's out and, and where we were not out drinking. We're at the, we're at the fish show, probably eating more fungus, just kind of getting settled in, you know, the house music was still on and I looked over and there was this girl and she was sitting there reading her book and, and knitting. She just, she had like some yarn and in the big, you know, I don't even know what those big tweezer things are called when you knit. (laughs) I'll have to do that on the fact check. I know exactly what you're talking about. I just don't know what they're called either. But she, she sat there and she, she, she may have been taking like the set list down. Um, but I think that she was reading right then when the lights were up, um, and just knitting away and, um, the lights went down and, you know, people that maybe were like sitting, stood up and, you know, the whole room fills with excitement. 
and she just sat there and knitted away Good and for her. just seemed to be like in her own little zone. Some people kind of brought up like, well, sometimes, you know, you need to like have something to do with your hands. And I'm like, that's important. That, but at the time I was just like, wow, you know, I, I was told before I went to my first show, like there's all sorts of people there. Like you're going to see like guys in suits. And I did, I, I saw like businessmen arrive in their, you know, three piece suits and change out. And some of them didn't even change. And, you know, young people, old people, uh, the, you know, the, like I said, the dreadies, the hippies to harken back to the, uh, bittersweet motel guy, the, the V dubs, <laughs> you know, like all sorts of people. And here was like this girl and this is just what she was doing. And she was happy. She was having a good time. And it's not that she did that the whole time, but just for such a long period. And it just took me by, like, I was just in awe of it at the time. So that I would say that's the, the weirdest thing that I've seen. When was this show played? The Fall 2000 tour consisted of 22 shows. It began in the beginning of September in Albany. And then it moved up and down the East Coast and then across the Midwest for shows in Ohio, Illinois, and then Minnesota, Kansas, and then going all the way far west to Colorado, Las Vegas. And then they closed with five shows up and down California. Today's show, the 14th of September, was the fifth show of the tour. And I think it was the only one up to that point that was a one-night stand at a venue. Every show before that was at least back-to-back. For me at the time, I was a freshman at SUNY Buffalo, State University of New York. I was deep, deep into my fish obsession. I was so happy that they were coming through Darien Lake. It's only about 40 minutes from the downtown campus of Buffalo. And I was a freshman. My brother was a senior. He had a car. I did not. He's not into fish. I very much am. So we struck a deal. I said, I'll buy you a ticket if you give me a ride. He was totally down. He'd been hearing about fish for years from me. And of course, just being in college, especially in upstate New York, it's in the air. So he figured he'll get some of his friends together. He'll take me. He'll see what it's all about. And so this was his first and to date only fish show. But this was the first time I remember having a real lot experience because my first four shows were at Madison Square Garden where there is no parking lot. And after that, my next couple of shows were in um, at the Coliseum, the Nassau Coliseum. But the minute I got there, my friends and I went straight to get in line for GA. So we didn't walk around the lot at all. After that, we went to Hartford and we just, we were running late. So we went straight to the venue. So I never really saw Shakedown Street until this show. And wow. Darien Lake has a great lot. So I was a freshman in college. I was just about to turn 18. Where were you in the fall of 2000? Uh, So I was in Albany. Uh, I went to those tour opening shows and then uh, skipped over. I guess it was Mansfield um, and and hopped back on in in Darien Lake. I'm from the basically Darien Lake is halfway between Buffalo and Syracuse area. Um, so it's, it's Darien Lake is a place that I went as a kid. Uh, that was my amusement park to go to. Right. For people who don't know, it's a six flags as well. Living out in Albany, did the tour opener had, you know, uh, just 
a weekend long party of people, just tons and tons of friends, uh, a little bit of a reunion kind of thing. And then to go back closer to the hometown, uh, picked up a couple of, uh, you know, kind of like fringe fans. They had been to shows and, you know, they don't like go to all of them. And they're like, I was like, hey, I got you tickets. Let's go. So we were uh, riding into town. We we hit the lot um, a little bit later than normal. But yeah, that was that was not my first one. But you're right. It is it is quite uh, the area because, I mean, they've got a whole amusement park parking lot and then there's a whole separate like concert venue on the backside. It was a lot of fun. And I will say in 2000 and let's not forget Fish had announced by this point or if not right here very soon after that they would be going on a hiatus. Right. This yeah. tour would end in on October 7th, I believe, in Mountain View at Shoreline was their last show. And right. so this was leading up to that. Right. I don't know that it was like an official announcement yet, but there was definitely uh, online rumors flying around uh, for sure. Um, I don't remember if I was on Fantasy Tour yet or if it was just Fishnet, probably just dot net. And there were, you know, some people that would talk about, well, there's going to be a hiatus coming up and people would offer the rebuttal. Well, there's always a hiatus coming up. We've been talking about that for years. You know, this isn't the dead. And they kind of harken back to, well, the dead took some breaks and it doesn't mean anything. It just means that if you are, you know, constantly touring for year after year after year, sometimes you got to, you know, take a break. Being a couple of years immersed into the scene, um, didn't notice the the dirty changeover um as much um and in fact like probably guilty of contributing to it um not in a <laughs> I, I guess in the in the raver crossover you know the ecstasy aspect of it because i was i was into doing uh those as well it was just for me like damn exciting and some of the the sketchiness that was around it were things that i was already like hey I'm already conscious of that kind of thing. Uh, I had been to um, a couple of festivals, um, you know, like smaller ones or whatever. And I'd seen, seen some of the underbelly. I wasn't viewing it as uh, in, Hey, this is an infiltration. I was viewing it as, well, this is just part of it. And you need to, you know, kind of like deal with it appropriately, but it was there for sure. Right. So to forgive the pun, it's kind of the idea that a fish doesn't know that it's wet. Where it's like right. you're you're inside of it, you don't realize that it's going on around you because it just is what it is. I noticed it for sure, and I because maybe I wasn't into the scene in the on the way that you were. I'm very cautious uh, in terms of what I ingest, whether it's at a show or not. And I remember very specifically at this show, it's very stereotypical look. If you had to. Like give a police sketch artist a description of a gen- general Wook. This guy matched almost every stereotype that you can come up with. And he just leaned in real close. He was all sweaty and well, I'll leave it at that. And he asked, do you, I know where the bathroom is? And I said, you know, I was like, I don't know, maybe over there. And I pointed in some nondescript direction to where I thought the porta potties were. And he leaned in real close to me and he whispered, he went, thank you. And then he held his hand out and I didn't know what he was doing. And he just opened my fingers and pressed this loose pink pill into <laughs> my palm. But yeah. if, if that could just literally come to you unsolicited, unprovoked, not looking for it. And it, and it was, I thought it was starting to get frayed around the edges. 
And right. I didn't make the connection yet that that's maybe a partial reason they were going on the hiatus. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but I thought it was quite noticeable at right. the time, even for me, who is, who wasn't that experienced in the uh, in-person scene. I, I was a little fr- afraid. I was 17. I was a little weirded out for so, sure. So my, my first show uh, at, at Vernon Downs, we were like car number four in the parking lot because my dad actually lived around the corner. So we had the very short and the back way in drive. Lots of people talk about, you know, getting off the throughway and how long it took them. So I, I saw that lot grow. Uh, from, from like, you know, three or four cars into, you know, however many thousands of people showed up there and, and, you know, the, the sketchiness, it was more like my more experienced buddy was like, Hey, you know, watch out for this, watch out for that. And he, um, I think that just the group of friends we were with, we had like a certain barrier, so to speak, like, Hey, they already knew what was up and anybody who needed to kind of keep moving along was kept moving along by the time we're talking about in the fall of 2000. Um, I, there were some of those people that admitted like, Hey, I'm just here for the party. Now I like the music. Yeah, it's cool. They got into some other bands in the scene. Um, but some of those people, they, they did, they said we're going on fish tour because it offered so much more in the terms of the bigness of the party. Um, so to that end, yeah, it, it, it definitely, um, especially looking back now, especially like, you know, with those more mature eyes as the years have kind of gone on, um, you know, it, it's, I think we're all very lucky that not only did they take that break, but then the, the next one afterwards. Set one. The first set opens with punch you in the eye. And I was running a little late because my brother got pretty caught up in the parking lot scene. It's like when, you're making your way through a zoo or a museum and your kid stops to stare at something and you keep walking. And then you realize after a few seconds, you look around to your left and right and your kid's no longer with you. The irony here is obviously my brother's older than me. And so he was my kid. I was looking around, but punch you in the eye was a great opener. And it, I I guess I forgot to mention that this show a few weeks, maybe, or months, I'll have to check after the hiatus began, was released as one of the first live fish recordings. And it was really nice as a surprise for me, at least, to feel almost vindicated that, like, I knew I saw a really cool and arguably great show. And like, oh, good. Fish recognizes that, too. And that that first round um, of shows for that. And, and just to remind the listeners, the live fish back then, those, these were physical CDs. Um, right. Right. Now, so they picked five and that was the only one that was close to the current time. Right. Um, everything else was, you know, 92, 93, 95, maybe I don't remember the, the series. And then I remember the next round, I think they did like all the Halloweens, which again, you know, the closest one was like 98. Um, so it, it it really, you know, you're absolutely right. Vindicated is the perfect word. It was like, this was like such a choice show that, you know, it got plucked right away. Yeah. And in both the audience recording and the soundboard recording, you can hear the echo in this venue. Uh, for anyone who hasn't been there, and Trey makes reference to it, I think at the end of Susie Greenberg, he says, it's really cool playing in this giant tent. 
tent. And so you could hear the echo all the way back. And this will become very relevant, I think, in the second set, especially during some of those uh, jams. So I was very happy when the soundboard was released because it kind of made it a bit easier to hear because, well, when we get into the jams, we'll, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, how detailed and subtle some of the interaction was, but not during Punch You in the Eye or necessarily the next song, Reba, which is the first, in my opinion, first big highlight of the show in terms of jamming. Yeah, the um, again, kind of like talking about how Reba was one of those first songs that I had heard from the, uh, from the guys working in the kitchen. Um, it was again, an- another, another hype one. I mean, just <laughs> like, I just felt like, I just felt like the vibrations going through that whole place were just electric and maybe it was, you know, from the storm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> by the time it gets to, and I don't remember uh, if, if we have like names for the sections of Reba, but to the, to the jazzy improv, by the time it reached that, I was just like, uh, I'm like, wow, this show is so intense already. It was hearkening back to my first show where I didn't know anything at all. Even though it didn't have whistling, I think that I still would. <laughs> <laughs> well, it did have a little bit of dissonance and minor key playing, which is when I think back to Fish in 2000, that is kind of the overall sound I think of, just not always in Reba. So it really showed that their style at the time could creep in anywhere. 100%. Yeah. Um, that like kind of dissonance that oftentimes it didn't in this show, I don't think. Um, but Trey had that little mini keyboard that he had on yeah, stage. Yeah. We kind of play into that and that that got that like you know it's it's hard to to label it like techno or edm but it's like that's where a band like fish or you know even go talking about the dead 
Like they're, they take what's going on in the music around them and absorb it and then reproduce it in a way that's all fish. So you yeah. can't like, say like, Hey, this is, you know, I feel like you could, you could almost say like, this is, there's a little bit of like that disco dead, right? We, we knew that, but with, with fish, it's just, you know, they're just pumping out probably due to their high level of musicianship between the four of them, but they're pumping out this music. That's all fish, but it does, it, it does feel like you can feel those errors. And that's, that was definitely one. And that really ambient soft sound, the dissonance and the, and the hard kind of like beats and things like that were, were definitely around in this 2000. They follow up Reba with Albuquerque, the Neil Young cover, which I was really happy to hear. And it was a big 180, a big about face from the loud, loud, loud punch you in the eye and the somewhat blissful jamming of Reba. And then there's this quiet, soft, not acoustic technically, but a slow ballad song. And interestingly, they played this song three times in 2000. This was the third of three. And it wouldn't be played again until 2009. So it's a perfect come down after the opening couple of songs before they really take it into hyperspace with Carini. And to me, I like this jam more every single time I hear it. It's it's otherworldly. And I am 100% at the time. I didn't even know Carini. I didn't know what it was or that it existed. I just knew that we were, like you say, we're coming off of a, an acoustic like mellow. It was a breather that I needed. Again, I was, you know, mm-hmm. smoking cigarettes then. So that's what I did <laughs> during Albuquerque. And Karini starts up, and I was like, holy shit, what is this? Because I don't even know if I had heard that much of a metal sound live out of fish yet. And when it rips into that, and you know the bass boom, and it's just like, yeah, it, it's actually Karini's mom, my wife's favorite song. Um, I played this for her not too long ago, and she's heard it before. But it's like, hey, you know, now that you've got all these years on, and you've gotten some more experience, like go back and listen to this from like this different era, and getting her to start to like, you know, try to like hear and identify what years things are from. This one's tough because it's so good. <laughs>
it really is on this listen or re-listen as it were i thought you know images came to my mind and to me this kind of i'm a big nerd i'm a big star wars fan this kind of reminded me of kylo ren's lightsaber like it's powerful it's strong but it's kind of like brash undisciplined they play a few wrong chords here or there during the intro but there's like some edge to it it's not finessed yeah I like I like that uh, comparison to to Kylo Ren, <laughs> especially considering you know we we'd have to be talking about Darth Maul. I think in, at the time when it comes out, so you don't even have. Oh, that. that's right, right. <laughs> you don't you don't even have the Kylo Ren one in yet, but now we can look back and be like, no, this is this is more accurate. <laughs> yeah, it's very brash, uh, and there are some really good turning points in this jam. There's a part around three minutes or a little after three minutes where Trey plays this. God forgive me, I'll never get this right. But it kind of sounds like a backwards guitar effect. Yeah. I don't know what it is exactly, how to define it, the vocabulary for it. But this is um, very much when I think of fish in fall of 2000 in a bottle. This is what I would I would uh, think of. I don't remember what it is either, but when he did his latest uh, rig rundown um, and he showed that one, I, I remember turning to whoever was there, probably my wife and maybe my, my kids. And I'm like, this is it. This is it. <laughs> and, and they're like, what? And I was like, do you hear him doing that? Like, do you know how long I've been trying to figure out what that is? Like, and again, as a person, I don't, I don't play an instrument. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm a professional music listener. Um, so, <laughs> I'm a professional beer drinker. Yeah, exactly. So um, in my, all of my years listening to fish, it's always been trying to figure out who's making that sound, who's making that sound like, and you know, it, at some point in time, I think listening to like a live one and listening to like gumbo. And I was like, is that a real horn or is that page playing it on the keys? Cause it, you know, didn't have the ability to look all those up quite yet. Um, and as time has gone on, I think that's become, you know, as, as the mic sound has become the people for a lot of mic going through 97, um, you know, and, and pages confidence, like that's been a huge thing into, in into hearing more what he's doing. And the, the addition of the synths that, backwards guitar playing has always been one of those things where it's like, what is happening here? And, and, and I, when you I, ask what is happening here, I found myself asking that to myself many times uh, during these re-listens during Carini, especially 
because they change rhythms uh, near six minutes. I wrote, I don't even know what this means right now. I wrote moving on to sirens at seven minutes. I don't even know like what is happening here. And things definitely get more psychedelic. I'm so grateful that this was put on a soundboard and released because I listen to audience recordings a lot, especially now for this podcast. And it's really hard to really, like you were just saying, pare down who is playing what. That doesn't mean you can't appreciate it, but it's it's not as decipherable. It's not as, it's not as full. Um, like the, I feel like the levelness, you know, like when you talk about listening to Boomy recordings. In a lot of the, like this, especially. Yeah. And, and the ones from the Nick too. the, the Nick audience recordings can be very boomy, especially like the 99, 2000 ones. But even like, you know, I listened to that, uh, the 2009 Nick show and um, it, it has like a boom to it. And until you can hear like a soundboard and compare it um, back then, we didn't know any better. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, and then already we're pretty much at the end of the set. It's Okipa's ceremony into Susie, but it's not just Susie Greenberg. It is Susie Greenberg jam. And this is the part where my brother had a lot of fun. You know, that, that Karini wasn't exactly beginner stuff. It's right. a lot to take in. And especially all the way at the back of the venue, it's a wall of sound. It really right. is with a lot of subtlety. But when I looked over at him, they play a typical Susie Greenberg. It's about four minutes. And then according to fish.in, the jam, which it is listed separately as just jam, it's thirteen yeah. minutes long. Yeah, and and uh, David will tell you the timer will tell you the jam had to fall off at a certain point. You know, back whenever it was in the mid nineties because it was just being used so often for the live fish series, the Darien Jam or Burgess Town mm. Jam. Th- those kind of like reemerged, and some people like debated like, is this for you know licensing purposes or whatever? Um, but they didn't need to do that for Susie because that's you know their own or in the dude and whatever else. But that absolutely was like it was like the song ended and we didn't just you know meander our way into uh a a tweezer jam or you know we didn't just go type two like it was like injection like we are going into like raging house party right now (laughs) yeah it's and it and it does a lot of things that fish doesn't normally do it's there's like a Mike bass solo there. There are fishman drum breaks. You know, he famously says that he hates drum solos, right? But they bring it all there. And I'm not sure if this is because the band was just having a lot of fun with those very basic Susie Greenberg chords or Trey looked up and saw that they were going to end the set after the end of Susie and realized, Oh shit, it's only 50 minutes long. You know, the set to- total is only 62 minutes. It's an hour plus two minutes. Right. Um, I do think that there's been times where I've seen all sorts of bands like kind of like check those stage clocks. Yeah. Um, and do something like that. I suppose like it, it's they certainly could have gone into, you know, cavern or or, or something else. Um, I like to think that the uh, the crowd energy from the rain <laughs> for those of us who were on the lawn. Yeah. When was it starting to come down? Do you remember? So, I mean, you know, we we knew going in that there was going to be a wet show. Um, in fact, we like, were really responsible and we packed like, Hey, here's the dry clothes for after like dry pro move. Yeah. And, and, and maybe even like a a raggedy towel. Cause it's like, well, you know, we're not going to bring the, 
the all the towels because it's just going to be mud. Not that I've never uh, sought out a stub down, but we were just like, hey, we're just going to chill on the lawn. Like we knew that's what we were doing for that night, no matter what was going to happen. Um, so, you know, it had rained, like it was drizzly, like there was a little bit of like, you know, showers, whatever. Um, but in in my memory, it the, the downpour was really like close to the beginning of them going to that jam, if not like right before. I feel like it was like raining during Susie and we were all kind of jumping around, having a good time. And then it just picked up and then that jam was going and we were just like, we we were drenched through already. We were just having a really good time with it. It was the sudden break after that was all over and the cold <laughs> winds that were coming in that, that led to like, oh shit, this is where we're, this is miserable right now. Yeah. It is Western <laughs> New York. Let us not forget. I'm, I'm, I'm actually surprised that they scheduled an outdoor show yeah. <laughs> in Western New York in September. I mean, that's just, you know, cause there is no fall. In Western New York, and there's yeah. barely a spring. It is summer, and then it snows. Right, and then it stops snowing, and then it's ninety degrees. Right, <laughs> I, I've 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 spent many uh, of a, a Labor Day weekend at Modown in upstate New York. Uh huh. Uh huh. You know, there were some super chilly. There was some super rainy. There was some super like there was a couple of them that were really nice. Like, hey, we had this perfect 
holiday weekend and the sun was shining and it was chilly at night. It was sweatshirt weather. It was awesome. But like, that's it. That's the cutoff. Like you go into that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, like, no, like, you're done, man. You know, what are you outside for? Like until you're putting on skis. Um, so I was surprised. And uh, yeah, that was the perfect combination that it was, it was cold and we were just drenched all the way through and the teeth were chattering during set break. Set two. And obviously in response to that gigantic downpour, they opened the second set with Drowned, which they did before and they still continue to do today. There's a big rainstorm. Let's play Drowned because everyone is soaking wet. And I love this song. As I've mentioned on this podcast, I'm a huge fan of The Who. So whenever they play Drowned, it's like a blessed event for me. And it was funny because the last version of Drowned that I saw before this show was December 12th, 1999 in Hartford, which was a 30-minute version. And then this version is also about a half hour long. So I thought, oh, every time they play Drowned from now on, it's just going to take up a quarter of the set, second set Drowned opener. I guess we're just here, you know, get comfortable, go pee now if you need to. Right. But right. The, the song itself is just five minutes long. And then you're there. This is Darian Jam number two. A lot of people know it as. Right. Yeah. That, that, that jam was so long uh, that uh, it, it's got two separate sections on that one. And, you know, I caught um, Drowned at my second show at the Nick. And then the one before that, it was a big Cypress. And I don't know how long the one was a big Cypress, but everything was, you know, that New Year's Eve set, everything was super out there. So I was settled in for uh, a, a, a nice good jam. I wasn't thinking like, hey, if they're going to get spacey, I'm just going to stand here. I'm going to get really, really cold. I kind of, you know, went to that happy place in my head and said, I'm going to enjoy this. And I, I had from some time in the military perfected the way to stand and not be miserable. <laughs> so I did that. Uh, my girlfriend at the time had a little bit harder of a time with it, <laughs> but you know, that's, we just had to, to soldier through it at that point in time, but it was so very worth it. I don't know, not right away that we knew what it would be how iconic this one would become, um, especially coupled with the rest of the set. But it was, uh, we, we knew we were in for a good time. Yeah, it's it's hard to appreciate this Drowned unless you've re-listened to it many times. It really is, in my opinion. To me, it sounds like looking back 20, what, 22 years later, I guess we're we're at, uh, yeah. or or so, well, it's it's like the headphones jam which I think was released in 2004, where it's extremely abstract at times. There are parts where you can really grab on and just nod your head and maybe move your body. But you said your girlfriend at the time was not appreciating it. My brother at the time was not appreciating it. It was real tough. And But there are parts where... When you listen back now and you can be warm, you could put on, you know, your favorite sweatshirt and just zone out for 25 yep. minutes where it's this is genius stuff at times. And then there are parts where I think, well, it's kind of falling apart and it's just everyone doing their own thing on four separate instruments and they happen to be on the same stage together.
you know, it's funny you mentioned the headphones jam um, because I like to think of it too, like the storage jam um, yeah. from yeah. Super Bowl, where you know it it gets directionless, and it's one of those like I think it's one of those things that you know we as you know huge fans are okay with because that's the surrender to the flow for the for the band, right? That's them going okay. Let's just completely let loose and try not to steer this anywhere. And you do get some of that. Okay. We're, we're treading a little bit, trying to find the way. Um, but the payoff is huge. The payoff for me is yeah. huge. And I felt like the, um, <clears throat> the storage jam got into that same type of realm where it's like, you're not going to play this convincing anybody to go to the concert with you. <laughs> this, yeah, is not, well this is not intro piece. This isn't even like, Hey, you liked your first concert. Would you like to go see it again? Here's a different one that we, we can listen to. You've got to be, um, yeah, the girlfriend of the time was at her like, you know, third show or something. So it was, it was still new and hard to appreciate. I'm sure. Yeah. This is like graduate level ambient jamming. It's right. tough yeah. stuff. Uh, <laughs> and you mentioned the grateful dead before you, when you were talking about hiatuses and stuff like that, there's, there's some parts here that remind me of, like a 1974 playing in the band, but in 74, things were getting a little more cracked out for right. the phrase, uh, very much more psychedelic. And to me playing in the band, when it got out there, um, sometimes you lose interest in it. Sometimes you're really invo- involved and absorbed. It kind of depends on the day and how you're yeah. feeling and what you're doing. I get the same vibe from this version of drowned. So it's funny that you bring that up too, because like there was, um, Back then, too, like in the early 2000s, I, I remember uh, stand-up comedians started to become like these storytellers. Like there was like the beginning of that. And it's much more common now. Um, and there was this guy, I don't even remember who he was, and he was telling a story about like going to see the Grateful Dead. And he said, you know, if you've never been to a Grateful Dead show, um, the best way I can describe it is I was, I was there, the lights went out, and uh, a real, you know, veteran, a real deadhead turned to me and said, is this your first time, man? And, he, and I was like, yeah. And he goes, hold on. <laughs> and he goes, That's the best thing I can tell. And he said, he goes, and sometimes all the members are up on stage and it almost seems like they're all playing their own song, but you've got Jerry Garcia who either at the beginning or the end will make you realize like, he's the one that's playing all of the songs and he ties it all together. And that's what made him such, you know, uh, a legendary, you know, guitarist is he could take, you know, all these different things that were going on. And I think some of the stuff with the comparisons with fish and the dead, especially, you know, when from the bittersweet motel, when they, when they interview Trey about it and he's like, you're not going to be the next grateful dead. I think that like, that's some conscious level or maybe it's even subconscious that he, doesn't do that he's not tying it all in all the time um and i think that's an important distinction in the way that the jams kind of come out in that this one when it when it does and it gets that super spacey like it's like this whole like layoff kind of thing and i think some of that stuff too like comes out now um you know people who want to every everything's got to be you know machine gun tray well it's not machine gun tray anymore because it's patient listener tray and I don't know if that was necessarily happening, you know, in the 2000s, especially with all the extracurricular stuff going on. But I think that you can connect those dots to, to jams like this, to what, what happens now. And I feel like that's why 
the stuff now is just so fucking good. rest of the band was quieting down and they go almost instantly into cross-eyed and painless, which I did not expect. And my favorite thing about this audience res- recording is you could hear someone scream, hell yeah. <laughs> when they started, I, the audience needed it. A 30 minute psychedelic deep wormhole after a rainstorm in the colds. I don't know if that's what everyone's looking for. Right. It, uh, I, in the, in the lawn, we appreciated it for sure. Not just uh, for, you know, the, the get the body moving, get the blood pumping again kind of thing, but it did it like it, it kind of like snaps you out. Like you're in this trance and you're so deep in this and then it's like, bam, those early notes and, and that crazy rhythm of cross-eyed just kind of like got it, got us moving again. Yeah. With a great jam, more psychedelia closer to Caspian, not Caspian. I'm sorry. Closer to Carini in the first set, this jamming style is than the drifty ambience of Drowned, which I really enjoyed both of them. But I think this cross-eyed and painless is kind of like a pick-me-up while still saying staying in that 2000 realm of improvisation.
And then they drop seamlessly into dog face boy, which is a much needed breather. Right. And, and, and a, a fantastic song to catch. I don't, I don't remember if that was, that was definitely the first one I think that I saw. And I don't know that if I've caught one since, to be honest with you. And I've well, not. The, the notes that I have, they're, they're not going to answer your question or your thought, but I always thought of this as a rarity since like 1995. It was right. played six times in 2000, which is, oh, wow. yeah, which is a lot, right? I mean, it doesn't yeah. sound like a lot just by raw numbers, but it kind of is. And I thought in this context that it almost played like a nursery rhyme. Like it's not too quick. It's enough to bring you back. It's a song that most people know. It's not going to drift off into who knows what. So it brings us back to center before they almost close the set with Prince Caspian, which is pretty rocking, uh, more psychedelic, amelodic playing. But the band is holding steady for maybe the first time this set. Oh, yeah, for sure. Fishman banging on his China symbol. I loved it. I know Caspian gets a lot of guff, but this is a version to check out if you've kind of drifted away from Prince Caspian, other than Magna Ball, of course. I think, you know, it's funny that I never had that fucker pants outlook. Neither did <laughs> I. I was surprised to hear it. And it, it, it was, you know, is it like a soft melodic? Sure. The whole album has that feel. Yeah, and that's it's regarded, true. It's regarded as like this was like, you know, the pinnacle album um, for so long. It's like, hey, listen, we've really gotten in. We've, we've been able to kind of put all these different parts that we've wanted to kind of come up with this sound. Um, and, uh, no, yeah. I, and I, I caught it, I think at my second show and, um, 
number of times since. So when Magnaball happened, it was like, okay, fine. We can officially approve Caspian is like a real <laughs> song or something. And I'm like, what are you guys talking about? Like, it's like, there's been plenty of like, you know, good versions uh, that have gotten into some nice jams on type one and type two. Like, what more do you want? And then they actually do close the set with Loving Cup. And it occurred to me this time listening to the show that this is probably the first straightforward rock and roll since Susie Greenberg to close yeah. the first set. You know, it was this was not a straightforward show, but Loving Cup is about 13 minutes long. That is not usually the case. Yeah. I, w- I wonder if how, what, what's the total set time? I'll have to do that during the fact check. I don't know. It's certainly longer than set one. Right. But I wonder if that led to that as well. Kind of like knowing in retrospect that the, there was a three song encore. That, did they feel like they had a lot of time with the rain and stuff like that? I don't know if, if the venue is like, hey, play a little bit longer because we, we don't want to get these people out in the mud. <laughs> right I wonder if Trey also, I know it's not just his decision entirely. He is not the band, but I, he is pretty much the musical director. I think it's fair to say that after an entire set of random guests, I'll have to double check this, of course, random guests of this set length, I'd say an hour and 12 minutes. But I would I would suggest that as abstract and weird as Trey would get, uh, not counting 2004 when, you know, he couldn't see four feet in front of him. But it was I think that he needed to get some of that machine gun out. Right. He needed to just rock. And I think that's what this loving cup did for him. It put a and as well, it put a cap on the show, which is, I would argue, maybe aside from uh, Indio Festival Nine, this is probably top two, top three versions of this song. It's a it's a super rocking version for sure. Um, I, I am not the biggest Stones fan, just in general. Um, so I'm fairly certain when this song was played, I didn't know it wasn't original. I was in that, oh, okay. uh, in that kind of like phase, um, with some stuff and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a ton of fun. It did. You're right. It, it put a cap on it. Um, but it wasn't, it was nice that it wasn't your typical, like, Hey, we're going to play a five minute closer song and close out. Right, it get was nice out of get- here. Yeah. Yeah. It was nice to get our blood pumping again. <laughs> um, yeah, warm you up. <laughs> towards the end, so, you know, the, the extremities can be felt <laughs> as, if we, as we were going to be heading out soon. And for the encore, like you just mentioned, three songs. The first two were acoustic, you know, not like when we talked earlier that um, Albuquerque was almost acoustic, but, you know, it was played on an electric guitar. These were technically acoustic, played on an electric guitar, which comes from, I think, this farmhouse era of being very trace centric. And he went on his first solo tour in 99, I think in the spring of that year. And he was yep. very much about playing acoustic solo. Yeah. I, I absolutely adore driver. Um, Me too. Driver is one of those songs uh, that the lyrics are just straight poetry. Um, and it has always um, sat in this place where it's like, if only the masses could hear this, type of song that they play they would understand <laughs> yeah i agree because it is so witty it really is and it's it's really jaunty it's a fun song to bop your head around to i say yep. with a huge smile on my face right. and i also had the thought that it, with with the 
the privilege of looking back, you know, the uh, the wisdom of time that the fact that they played driver and the in-law Josie Wales back to back, which is both of them are just Trey acoustic. I, I, I don't know if they took this hiatus to, as they said, recharge. I really think it was more for Trey to indulge his solo ambitions. And I'm not saying that he was breaking away from fish, but I think, you know, he had more to say than could be expressed by this band. You know, he, I think every star of every band wants to go solo at some point, not permanently in this case, but you know, he wanted to play. And I think the fact that he was kind of inserting that into fish's set list was part of the reason was indicative of this hiatus. This is all speculation. I have no, I have no fucking clue. I mean, we all know the drug stuff and because they, they've been forthcoming with that information, you know, going through the history, they were always all involved in some sort of like, you know, side project thing, some a little bit more than others, but farmhouse being like produced by Trey, you know, that's like surrendering all the control instead of having a, you know, a fifth person out there doing that. Um, and it did, it, it did the, the whole album had that very much like, well, is this like a Trey solo album with like Fish is the backing band? And no one wanted to see that happen. So then what do you do? Then you say, okay, let me get some more outlets. But like you said, too, like the, how they said the, the recharging part is important. Everybody's recharging way isn't going and sing at home. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, and certainly it, with the hindsight that, you know, he was struggling a little bit more with drugs. Uh, sitting at home is probably a bad idea. So <laughs> getting out there and working and keeping those hands busy um, kind of like comes back into play too. But you're right. It it, it was kind of like weird, like, okay, now he's out here, but like, he's just playing. And it's not like at the end where Paige will stay on stage and, and play a piano outro and everybody else leaves or whatever. This is just, Hey, we're coming out for the encore, but it's just me. that's going to play for like two songs. It's that weird at the time. I liked hearing it. You know, in-law hasn't been played since that tour. Yeah, the last time it's been played was October 6th of 2000 at Shoreline Amphitheater. That was the show where Bob Weir came out. And, and Driver's never been a super common song. I, I, I think you're right, though. I think it does speak to kind of like, now that we look back on it, like, oh, well, th- this is where he needed to do some branching out. But the show's not over yet. They closed the whole thing with Sample in a Jar, which is a fairly standard version but it's a better way to go out to leave this freezing cold, windy, rainy venue than, for example, the in-law Josie Wales. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I, you know, and, and part of my crew uh, at the end of Loving Cub were like, we're going to the car. <laughs> yeah, of course. They, they, they jetted and skipped the encore. They were, you know, they would have liked to, to catch the rarity kind of stuff. Um, but they they were just at that point. I was like, don't leave me. (laughs) I'll I'll be there shortly. (laughs) So Bobby fucking Weaver, thank you so much for coming on to attendance bias to talk about this pinnacle show of 2000, at least definitely with no pun intended, a tent pole show of this tour but thank you for coming on and giving a perspective on a show that for me personally i've had one vision of it for you know since it was played so it was really a pleasure to talk to you and hear it from another point of view hey man thanks for having me this was a blast i'd love to do it again so wow that was a lot to talk about and that's it for my interview with bobby weaver of massachusetts 
and talking about a show that is coming up on its 22nd anniversary. Man, we name-checked a lot of dates, especially Bobby, so it's only natural for us to go back and make sure we were correct during the Attendance Bias Fact Check. First, Bobby and I spoke extensively about the rainy weather during the show, and how this may be the wettest show either of us has attended. While this is not exactly a fact check, I would revise my statement, and instead of this show in 2000, I would suggest that the fish show on July 12, 2013 at Jones Beach is probably the rainiest, wettest, and coldest show I've ever been to. When talking about his first show at Vernon Downs in 1998, Bobby mentioned that the band started off with a ZZ Top cover. That was LaGrange, which has only been played three times since that show to date. While talking about when and how he first got into fish, Bobby says that if he didn't have other responsibilities, he would have, quote, driven off to Maine after his first show. This is a reference to the Lemon Wheel Festival, which took place just three days after that first show at Vernon Downs. At an Albany show in 1998, Bobby said that one of the weirdest things he's ever seen at a fish show was a fan knitting throughout. Both of us stumbled over what those long sticks are called that people use to knit. We're both a couple of space cadets because they are literally just called knitting needles. When discussing the fall 2000 tour and the band's impending hiatus, there was a little confusion between us about when the hiatus was officially announced and what fans knew at the time. The hiatus wasn't announced until six shows from the end of the tour, about six minutes into the band's performance of Colonel Forbin's Ascent on September 30th, 2000 at the Thomas & Mack Center in Las Vegas, Trey uses the narration portion to tell fans that the band is going to go on their, quote, first extended hiatus in about 17 years to get our home lives back together to recharge and to hopefully get another 17 great years. When talking about how today's show is one of the original Live Fish releases, Bobby mentioned a few other possible shows that were part of that batch. For the record, the first five official Live Fish releases were December 14th, 95 in Binghamton, July 16th, 94 at Sugarbush Mountain in Vermont, today's show, September 14th, 2000 in Darien Lake, June 14th, 2000 at Drum Logos Japan, and July 8th, 2000 at Alpine Valley. When going over the extended jam out of Drowned, I referenced the Headphones Jam. The Headphones Jam is a 47-minute entirely instrumental track that was recorded toward the beginning of Undermind in 2004 and released to the public in 2006. It is available through Live Fish and through YouTube. Finally, Bobby and I also guessed the set time for the second set of this show. I thought it was an hour and 12 minutes. I was off by literally just two minutes. According to Fish.in, set two is an hour and 10 minutes. And that's it for today's episode. I'd like to thank my friend Bob Weaver of Massachusetts for joining me today, Fish.net for its help with the sound check, and Fish.in for the recording used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of it on your favorite podcast app. And please follow Attendance Bias on social media. I am mostly active on Instagram and Twitter. If you reach out, say hello, I'll send you a free sticker. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you next week on Attendance Bias.